Welcome to The Professor and the Hack, episode 124. I am the Hack, Hugh Rimminton, and with me, as always, the Professor Peter Van Onselen. Hello, Pete. G'day, Hugh. What do you make of the new Labour front bench? Well, it's interesting. I, I mean, your views are a far better school than mine, but uh, I was intrigued to see Tanya Plibersek in Environment. Hmm. Much has been said about the fact that environment was central, central, you know, uh, climate policy, water policy. These are critical to the future of the country. And I was surprised to see a minister or an assistant minister for the republic. <laughs> Overall, pretty strong. I, I wasn't the front bench I expected, though. What did you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very good lineup, but there were certainly some surprises in personnel movements. And, and Tanya Plibersek is the big one to talk about. I know that online, in social media, there's been a sort of a, a rebound effect of people being frustrated when journalists have said that it's a demotion or something of that order. I, I think we should address that. It's not that it's a demotion because she's still in cabinet. Water and the environment are important. The environment, by definition, is less important and has been for a long time less important ever since climate change was carved out of it, but it's still important. And environment is always more important, I would argue at least lately, to a Labor government than it is to a coalition government. So it's therefore a more senior portfolio for the Labor Party than it is for the coalition when it's allocated to a cabinet minister. And of course, water and the Murray-Darling Basin and all of that is a huge issue, even though I would argue that Tanya Plibersek hasn't exactly been at the vanguard of probably giving it much thought over recent years. So it's not that it's a demotion for her, but, and this is the important but that social media doesn't seem to like, whether they like it or not, it is not what she wanted. Now, she'll spin that she's happy and all the rest of it, but there's a reason that when she was Deputy Leader for Labor, she chose education as a portfolio, as part of her then super portfolio. There's a reason that she was kept in the shadow education portfolio after the 2019 defeat when Anthony Albanese was looking to play nicely and was an opposition leader without the clout of Prime Minister. He kept her there because she wanted it. And it's natural and true that once they got back into government, she wanted to be in the education portfolio. So it's not that she's been demoted out of it by being moved. It's that she didn't get what she wanted. She wanted to be education minister. So what, what is that about then? Because some have suggested she wasn't quick enough to talk about a leadership push and that this is Albanese in the darker days of opposition. And this is Albanese demonstrating that he's got a memory for even the slightest whiff of disloyalty. Is there anything at all to that? I think there is. Uh, I absolutely think there is. And I, I, I'm not actually a critic of Anthony Albanese for, for having that view. Now, look, he knows that Tanya Plibersek is capable. And he also is savvy enough to know that she's a genuine leadership rival, potentially one day down the track. And he's also not stupid. He knows that she had one eye on the leadership if he faltered before he won the election. And what does all that add up to? Well, he's not dumping her into a portfolio like water and environment. He needs a competent minister there. But he also knows that she's been sent a bit of a message. It's not what she wanted. It's in some ways a harder portfolio for her because it's a portfolio that is going to be a tough one for her to be able to do as she gets her head around it, as she manages the stakeholders around water, as she deals with the complexity around some of the environmental challenges, particularly in the context of negotiating and dealing with the Greens in the Senate as well. And so Anthony Albanese is not punishing her by discarding her. He's punishing her by putting her in a tough, important portfolio that's not the one she wanted. And look, these two have history. And this doesn't get talked about nearly as much as it probably could or should outside the bubble, but there have been internal rivals within the Labor left for a long time. 
they've been friends, but they've also been the best of enemies. And Anthony Albanese, I am certain, knows that she was one of the naysayers about his leadership, at least privately. And again, I'm not critical of Tanya Plibersek for that either. She's allowed to have ambition. She's allowed to have her eyes on the leadership. She was a deputy leader who in many ways was more popular as deputy leader than Bill Shorten was as leader. And Bill Shorten very quickly after the defeat in 2019 tried to suggest that she's a natural next leader. She hosed it down when she realized that the left was coalescing around Anthony Albanese instead. So there's no criticism of either party as far as I'm concerned here. But the reality is, is that he does not, Anthony Albanese, the new prime minister, does not trust her as much as he trusts other people. And he has given her a bit of a penalty, which is not a demotion. It's interesting, too. We'll go on to other subjects, but uh, I had a very good friend who worked in a senior advisor role to a former federal environment minister and made a point which had passed me by, and that is it is an extremely difficult portfolio because it's a hyper-local portfolio. So on one level, you know, the Australian environment is a big thing, and yet it's actually made up of a myriad number of arguments about exactly what might happen if a dam goes up down in this particular valley and what it might mean to a particular frog or all these kinds of arguments that are sort of multiplied across the entire nation and um, technical bound up in law. And so you tend to get yourself in a lot of these discussions. It will keep her busy, Hugh. It will keep her very busy. Keep her busy. And then water is in many ways, the, the really is the poison chalice of Australian politics, because you cannot win with water policy in Australia. Many have tried. We've got to the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and a plan. No one loves it. It's controversial. It's been subject to corrupt activities, according to the Brett Walker Royal Commission, the South Australia Commission. And it is always, in the end, comes down to an issue that people upstream hate to see water flowing needlessly into waste downstream, and people downstream in the Murray-Darling Basin reckon all the water's been stolen by the people upstream. So there is no, no winner in that game. And if you're in the middle of it, it's very hard to burnish your credentials as a water minister. Yeah, and Tanya Plibersek is going to find herself dealing in environment with the Greens in particular, but also with the Nationals, uh, with the impact of the environment portfolio on the land. And same thing again when it comes to the water. She's going to be busy. It's going to be complicated. It's going to challenge her. Anthony Albanese has not cut his nose off to spite his face by moving her out of education because he's still taking advantage of her skills. But if you like, what he's doing is he's giving her less time to think about anything else other than getting her head around those portfolios and doing as good a job as she can. The other half of this puzzle, Hugh, is that he also had to reward Jason Clare, who's the new education minister. Now, he could have rewarded him with various portfolios. There was some talk that he might take home affairs. In the end, that went to Claire O'Neill, and we can talk about that. But you had Jason Clare do a, a stunning job as campaign spokesperson, particularly in that week when Anthony Albanese went down with COVID, and he needed to be rewarded for that. So even though he was the shadow housing spokesperson, and that was a signature policy for Labor at their campaign launch, there was a reward for him in moving up the totem pole into education that we've seen happen. And because it wasn't home affairs, that ended up going to Claire O'Neill. It's been paired back as a portfolio. You'll have some more nuanced and interesting views on that than I do, Hugh, given your expertise. But it's paired back, but it's still a crucial portfolio. And it's a big promotion for Claire O'Neill. She had been shadow aging. I'd actually been calling for her to keep that portfolio, given how much Labor talked about the importance of aging, just move it into the cabinet as a, as a standalone portfolio. It's now been attached to health formally, I believe, and therefore in cabinet. 
but she's been moved out of aging into home affairs in cabinet. So a big rise for Claire O'Neill, even though home affairs isn't as big as it was under the coalition with the restructure. It recognises that she's a rising star, I think. Yes, I agree. And so you mentioned ageing and the way in which it's been shifted. There are now, I think there's a cabinet minister, an outer minister and an assistant minister, all with ageing summer in their portfolio. Childcare, though, which is, you know, in many ways the, the key, and some would say the single most attractive policy that Labour offered, particularly if you're uh, trying to run a young family or, or a potential young family, that's not in the cabinet, or am I missing something? No, no, you're right. Uh, Amanda Rishworth, who had responsibility for it in her shadow role as the senior shadow, is now the social services minister and in cabinet. So she retains, I believe, in that broader social services portfolio oversight for childcare in the outer ministry, but not the title in her role in cabinet. So I guess it's in cabinet, but it, it is diminished though, isn't it? Because that's sort of your point, right? There's no title attached to it in cabinet anymore, even though it's a signature policy. Yeah, and this is this goes exactly to what Jim Chalmers was saying about it's not the quantum of spending, it is the quality of the spending. And if it is going to cost the, the budget money to provide something which will more closely approximate universal childcare access, that's expensive. But then the argument goes is that it's a multiplier in terms of productivity. Because, you know, my own daughter, who's 30 in a month or so, has a small child. She's a professional. She is looking at, you know, she's got two degrees. She should be now entering the peak period of her career, the career building thing. And yet with a new child, the price, and it's taken a long time to find childcare. This is in the suburbs of Sydney. The price of it says it's, it's not financially worthwhile going back to work. So for all the effort that she's put into educating herself, getting good jobs and all those sorts of stuff, that remains... An enormous impost, that childcare, and, and many, many other people uh, struggle to get back into work. And that is a structural, gendered difficulty for the nation, quite apart from the general family difficulty that it creates and the productivity difficulty that it creates. Well, one of the things that excites me about this coming term or two of government with Labor winning is what we're going to see as the reframing of these portfolios that are, in a sense, broader social services portfolios and issues in an economic light. You know, Jim Chalmers has been so big on this, and so has Anthony Albanese. This idea that we need to lift productivity, it's been talked about forever by numerous politicians, but he's now targeting it very particularly at what has long been talked about by academics and experts, that if you can, in a sense, spend better, but even for a short period, spend more, you get a benefit out the other side. So you, you get that productivity leap by actually ensuring a level of universality to things like childcare, but also, you know, in terms of quality of aged care and health spending as well, because the time it frees up from people who are otherwise part of the volunteer caring economy, able to get into the productive economy beyond what they are required to do for family and friends. This is a real economic reset. And I, I remember talking to the treasurer about this during the campaign. I mean, it was sort of, we were talking between us, but I, I don't think I'm being unreasonable to him to, to refer to it because it was no secret. You know, he, he answers the critique that I and others have had about the lack of economic reform that's on the table when it comes to, you know, shifting taxation, for example, from uh, taxing income to taxing wealth and, and, and doing a modern equivalent of the microeconomic reforms of the 80s. He answers that criticism by saying, I think you're unfair because these sort of shifts that he's going to be overseeing 
around you know portfolios that impact on productivity and the way that we need to understand what have once been seen as social services as economic imperatives. He says that is the economic transformation that this Labor government will do in its first couple of terms. And I underestimate and others underestimate how profoundly important it is. Now, we'll see. I'm genuinely, I mean, I'm, I'm a supporter of it, but I think that they have to walk and chew gum at the same time, personally. Yeah, and also it assumes there's a workforce ready and able to fill these gaps in in childcare and uh, and in personal care because there seem to be some doubts about that. Just before we leave the front bench, there is that issue of the new minister for the Republic. Yes. What's going on there? Is that a um, is that a kind of a dead cat of sorts that you throw out this Republic thing? So at any time you can just reignite a conversation about something that doesn't really matter. Anytime you want to. I mean, it seemed an odd choice to put it in there. You don't need to have a minister for the Republic, given they've already said it won't be in this term anyway. Yeah, well, my, my ears pricked up when I, when I heard Anthony Albanese announce it. It was Matt Thistlethwaite as an assistant minister. So, you know, in a sense, it's a parliamentary secretary being given this role. And I think it was the third or the fourth title amongst his various assistant minister roles when it was announced just kind of got dropped in there amongst them that he will also be the assistant minister for the Republic. I remember sitting in a colleague's office that we both know well, Hugh, and my, I sort of looked up at the television as I heard it. And it was it was interesting because I thought, hmm, what's that all about? I mean, it's preparing for the Queen's death is what it essentially is if you want to take political correctness out of the rhetoric. You know, she's not well. It's her jubilee. There's been a lot of talk from a lot of different people about the need for a Republican debate to be had in the aftermath of the Queen's passing. And, you know, Labor has ruled out doing it this term, whether she uh, dropped off the perch sooner or later. But clearly it's on the agenda for the second term. Well, it also does raise the question, long may she reign over us and all the rest of it. But if she does pop off in this term, it will inevitably reignite because of the expectations have been raised, a more active conversation around the Republic. And the danger by having an assistant minister covering it is that you can't run and hide from it. And yet it risks getting in the way, it it, it removes clear air from the real imperative on constitutional reform, which is the voice to the parliament. That's true. So that's my concern about it by flagging it so prominently at this stage. Yeah, it's a red herring in that sense, isn't it? It it can be a red herring, but it's vintage Albo to some extent now that he's got the power of the prime ministership. You know, uh, I can't remember if we talked about this in the last podcast or not, but there's two halves to Albo. There's the social justice half of the lefty Albo, and there's the one-time economic lefty elbow from his younger days, which he's had to jettison to appeal to the mainstream, both within his own party as well as in the wider public. But the lefty on social issues and social justice issues extends to the voice to parliament, Indigenous affairs, gender rights, LGBTI rights, but also things like the Republic, you know, as a, as a one-time idol of Gough Whitlam putting this on the agenda. Uh, And then one of the things that he could like about Paul Keating, if he didn't like some of the economic elements of him back in the day, was his position on the Republic. Albo Prime Minister wanted, I think, to be able to say when he looks back on his Prime Ministership, whatever his achievements or failures are, whatever his length of service is or isn't, he would like to be able to say, well, I kick things off with a call out for the voice to Parliament, an assistant minister for the Republic. These are the benchmarks that he wants to then hopefully achieve off the back of, but at the very least have the symbolism that he tried by putting them there in the first place. A whiff of, uh, of Keating with a view to sort of history and legacy. I want to talk about some of the immediate challenges facing the new government back in just a sec.
PVO, there are challenges facing the government. Mm. I think energy and gas are going to be the key ones that are coming up. But look, we might get to that. The, the foreign policy challenges, and, and particularly the Pacific, have been dealt with expeditiously, and it would seem well by Penny Wong. We've got uh, the Prime Minister and Ms. Wong heading off to Indonesia. This is all good stuff, isn't it? Well, I think so. I mean, you're, you're again, better placed on this one to take the lead. But optically, you know, she's been sent there. She seems to be having a few wins early on. The message uh, of change within Australia, but also engagement with the region, which was you know, referred to by the previous government, but with glaring examples of failure along the way. There's a lot of positives, I think, to take from it. And it's not unadulterated hostility towards China either, at the same time as engaging with the South Pacific. What's your view? Well, I think that's right. I think by by giving themselves visibility and uh, and plainly putting it as a top priority by having a go off so quickly does, I think, uh, it reminds people in the Pacific that there's real heart behind the words. I think also one of the things that people need to understand about the Pacific is that this notion about the Pacific family is real. There is a very strong impulse for consensus decision-making in Pacific nations and within Pacific nations. This goes very deeply to a Pacific way as they talk about doing it. And you saw China overreach by trying to come in and get a region-wide sort of trade and security arrangement with the foreign minister Wang Yi from China going down to do it. And they couldn't get consensus. Nui and Samoa said, no, not so fast. We're not sure about that. And so none of them signed it as a group-wide thing. And that's a little lesson for China, that you can't just pick off a few and then kind of wrap them all up. The way we've looked upon the Pacific family, Scott Morrison isn't the only one to have done this. There have been others who have done this, Mm. but he certainly did it, um, has been to basically say, yes, we're a family, but father knows best. And we're the big guys and we'll, we'll sort of push you around and we'll tick you off and we'll say that's a red line and stuff. That's appalling into those environments. They just don't like it. They feel talked over, talked down to. And I think that um, the process of leading with humility, of being present with humility into those forums is definitely the way that it will go. That being said, China's not giving up its interest in the Pacific. We can't expect that they will be. And uh, for decades to come, this will be part of our zone will be an active area of contest. Well, I mean, Scott Morrison has never, in in my read of him, struck me as the most nuanced of individuals recognising cultural delicacies in most spheres, much less when you then think about, you know, the nature of, of doing business in the Pacific. He becomes the bull in the china shop, doesn't he? Well, it's funny because one of the requirements of leadership, a really insightful leader, in my view, is someone who... Everyone's, everyone's got their own personality and their own instincts. You know, and, and if you get to prime minister, somewhere along the line, that has worked for you. And yet a, a true leader has got to have the capacity, particularly in the international sphere, to read rooms and to, and to, to adjust. This is, why, this is why there is the art of diplomacy. You know, the precise weighting of individual words. Scott Morrison's never had that. It's fascinating. Like, no. <laughs> you, you, you go, I mean, I remember, you know, you, you go back to some of the people who worked with him when they were shadow ministers before Tony Abbott even won in 2013, much less than dealing with him once they were in government, much less than dealing with him once he became prime minister. And it's story after story after story about him taking a my way or the highway approach to a lot of conversations. Not always. He used to understand moments in time where there was negotiation. He's not completely lacking in nuance, 
But the frustration of people who have worked very close with him about the fact that he can all of a sudden just get very belligerent and not as an exception to the rule, but as the rule. And, you know, some of his colleagues who shall remain nameless have found him incredibly frustrating on that front to deal with. Interestingly, though, my understanding is that that's not the case in campaigns, which is perhaps why he's seen as being such a good campaigner. You know, maybe his track record of having been a former, I mean, he has moments of stubbornness, you know, look at him with Catherine Deves, for example, and all the rest of it. But in a campaign sense, the former state director that is Scott Morrison was much more open to collaboration, as I understand it, than he ever was around decision making as a prime minister outside of a campaign. And then it became the exception to the rule even if it was a dangerous exception that could hurt him, like the Catherine Deves stubbornness, for example, in, in locking him behind her. But it was the exception. Whereas outside of a campaign, it was the rule, not the exception. And that's why he just looked like the proverbial bull in a china shop so often during his prime ministership. The bulldozer. Yeah, the bulldozer. Well, he's he's done, or we think he's done. I think he's still in Kirribilli House as we speak. Yeah, squatting. <laughs> the, squat Morrison, as, uh, as they call him. And someone has said, oh, no, it's convention that you're allowed two weeks. I'd, I'd never heard of that convention. Uh, John Howard apparently took a while. Yeah, look, there are no rules around this. It, look, the, the, the reason, and, and I, I sort of teed off on him on 10 News first about this, it's not the length of time, it's not, you know, and whether there is or isn't a convention, it's what agreements are made. So John Howard took longer, but that was because he had a longer conversation about his departure and Kevin Rudd was not moving into Kirribilli, he was moving into the lodge, and he'd been Prime Minister for 11 and a half years, and there was a conversation about it. My understanding is that there hasn't been the conversation this time. It's just Scott Morrison taking his God-given time to get out of there. Apparently because his house is getting a lick of paint or something. It's placed back in the shop. Exactly, and and I get it, right? Like I, I'm, I actually think there's nothing unreasonable about giving someone a reasonable amount of time to move out of a property the same way that you would in normal life. Mm. It's about, as it so often was in his prime ministership more broadly, it's about the lack of a conversation. You know, he's just doing it as opposed to uh, having all the conversations that allow for you to take longer, shorter, you name it. Yes, and he's still in parliament. He's just a mere backbencher. So, uh, you know, it does seem strange. Anyway, mm. other challenges that we're facing. It's interesting to see Jim Chalmers has come out. And he's done this. This actually reminds me of almost like an earlier age. He's coming because the Charter of uh, Budget Honesty was supposed to deal with this. But he's come in and he's done what they used to do in the old days. He says, oh, look, we're in power now. I've had a look at the books. They're worse. They're terrible. They're awful. They're, oh, God, my God, this place is a mess. This house is a mess. Look at this place. <laughs> and it always serves a function. You may as well do it. <laughs> Put the flag in the ground and say how terrible it was when you took over. Because then whatever happens, you then try to build the narrative that we made it better than that terrible thing that we got. I heard Peter Dutton saying, people are going to get heartily sick of this government blaming everything on the last government. They've only been there for 10 days. <laughs> and the coalition managed to blame Labor's debt and deficit disaster for years after the debt and deficit disaster was their own. Yeah, where do we go with this? I mean, equally, I remember in Peter Dutton's first press conference, you know, he, he jumped all over the fact that in three years from now, you know, this Labor government will have made a mess of things, so I will be holding them to account. How does he know that? I mean, talk about just highlighting that it's going to be adversarial combative politics just because it has to be, in his view. That was the ultimate example of that. But equally, though, having said that, Jim Chalmers, he comes out and says, oh, the books are so much worse than I thought, despite the whole budget charter of honesty, charter of budget honesty, I should say. Three years from now, when they go to the election, uh, when journalists say to him, well, how can we be so certain that the books are what they are that you present? He'll be saying, well, we have a charter of budget honesty. 
So of course they are. So <laughs> the, the, the hypocrisy abounds on all sides uh, sometimes when it comes to politics, doesn't it? Yeah. So on substance, he has already promised a budget in October. Mm-hmm. The parliament is not sitting again, this new parliament. Until the end of July. Till the end of July. He's already signalled that there'll be a major economic statement that would come down in June or July. He said that during the course of the election campaign. So there's much to discuss in the matter of the economy because, well, everything else goes on and we talk about front benches. There are huge issues. First among them really is now what seems like a genuine crisis developing on energy and particularly gas supply, exacerbated by a decision now, I think on principle, by uh, Europe to basically decouple from Russian gas and oil. And, And that has created a supply problem and we are feeling it. And people who are poor, I know people, my son goes off and tutors a family and uh, their kids and this family, the, the house is freezing, they can't afford the heating in the house. And I think that'll be actually something people don't publicize a lot, but will be happening in a lot of people's households. The, the age that the poor, large families, gas prices are going to go up. They're going to go up for industry with enormous impacts. And it's fiendishly difficult to do anything about that quickly. Yeah, look, there are so many levels to this. Ultimately, it, it, it's another cost of living impost on Australians. That's, the, I guess, for me, the first point. But then it is multi-layered with the reasons behind it. You can sort of potentially blame energy policy of the previous government over an extended period of time. You can talk about the impact of whether we've had transition arrangements between the debate about old, dirty power versus you know, a push towards renewables and has there not been enough of a focus on gas? You've got international factors going in there as well. But as you say, Hugh, ultimately, we can play the blame game or the reason behind discussion. The bottom line is it, it is affecting people immediately with no immediate solution and only limited options for government. And ultimately, the, the only real quick option for government is to try and help alleviate those pressures by providing rebates of some sort. But of course, that's hard because then that just puts more pressure on the budget. The Treasurer all but ruled that out as an option in the short term this week as soon as this became an issue. We'll see if they have a rethink on that in the coming weeks, depending on how acute this issue becomes. And even though these issues are long form, exacerbated by immediate issues like Ukraine and so on, but they have a long history. There's Peter Dutton immediately out there running as an opposition leader saying, I always told you electricity prices will always be higher under Labour. <laughs> and that kind of, if you like, retail smack him in the nose politics works. And it just might introduce an element of buyer's remorse, fairly or unfairly, and of course, in this case, that's unfairly, in some of those people who might have swung away from the coalition. I think that's right, because Peter Dutton is thinking about this through the prism of how people feel in, in two or three years when they're either at the polls or starting to think about the government going to the polls. So right now, if you asked people about Peter Dutton blaming Labor for energy prices going up and blaming Labor for for this, that or the other, including boats and whatever else it might be, it sounds ridiculous right now because right now they've only just gotten into government. You can't blame them for anything. Any consequence that they are facing is, is an inherited consequence. However, that rhetoric starting now and continuing unabated for so many years in the lead up to the next election, by the time people think about it then, they're not going to think about the fact that he started straight away and it was absurd. It's going to potentially be bashed into their brains as things have been bad under Labor. And you know they butchered this the moment they got in and prices went up, inflation soared, interest rates rose, cost of living got worse. The debt continued to compound with no alleviation of it. 
it's entirely possible with short memories and, and self-interest as voters that people hear all of this for, for two or three years, pounding into their brain, that at the end of it, they feel like this is all Labor's fault. Now, that's not fair, but that's adversarial politics at its absolute rawest. Yeah, few people do that with more alacrity than, uh, than the new leader of the opposition. You're about to take a break from 10 News First to write another book, this book being what? Titled Victory, the inside story of Labor's return to power. You know, sort of half of it are campaign chapters, long campaign, six weeks, six chapters, and the aftermath and the where to from here. The first half, introducing Anthony Albanese, nine years of hard labor. It's the economy stupid as a focus, state by state differences in the wake of the pandemic. So it's, 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 a, it's a book about Labor's win, talking to all the key players on both sides, including sitting down with the now Prime Minister and analysing how they made it happen. Hugh, you'd be uh, same as me, old enough to remember Pamela Williams's book, The Victory. We've left the the out of this one, but that was about the 1996 victory. 96, yeah. Oh, 96, of course, yeah. There was Dark Victory came later. Yeah, sorry, that was the David Marr one. Yeah, sorry. Ah, yes, yeah, yeah, that was David Marr. Yeah, The Victory was the glowing story from an insider's perspective of the way that Andrew Robb as the then federal director uh, vanquished Gary Gray and Paul Keating as the federal secretary and prime minister at that election. And don't know how it sold a book about John Howard's win in 96, but it's always been the pinnacle for me of, of campaign books. There's been other good ones, you know, both before it and after it. But to me, that's the one that, that we're looking to do a Labour version of this time around, because it is a hell of a story. In fact, the story is better, I think, than the politicians are at selling it and telling it. The background of Anthony Albanese, the level of washed out despair after the 2019 loss, uh, and then the blow by blow of the campaign, including him stumbling so badly on day one, but ultimately finishing so strong, and then them only just eking out a majority even though the Liberal Party collapsed because of the Teals. You know, it's actually a really interesting, rollicking ride. No, it's a fascinating election. Yeah, and, and knowing your usual capacity for breakneck pace, that'll be out, what, in about five minutes? <laughs> yeah, definitely out, uh, well, we're hoping in time for Father's Day and uh, certainly well before Christmas. And, yeah, it's um, a few interesting, newsworthy stories along the way as well. Cool, fantastic. We look forward to that. Well, we might drag you away from your typewriter your old uh, Olivetti or whatever it is that you pound out your works on. <laughs> and um, between your ribbon changes and, and grab you for a few more Professor and the Hacks as we go along. Uh, good to talk to you as always, Peter. Likewise, you look forward to the next one. You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.